Welcome to the Centre for Army Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Dean Cannon, heading up the British Army's Centre of Excellence for Leadership. Today I'm joined by Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Cutswright and Major Ben Audioway of the US Army, based at the United States Military Academy at West Point. They're here to talk through their concepts of moral terrain, why and how we might walk it, and how our respective armies might reconsider the concept of empathy towards our adversaries, particularly to gain an operational advantage. Ben, I'll come to you first, if I may. You're currently an instructor at the West Point Military Academy, instructing first on philosophy and now on what we in the UK would recognise as the commissioning course. What's the foundation of the leadership training and philosophy at West Point? West Point is primarily a character development institution that leverages rigorous academic, physical, military components to produce a graduate that is committed to a lifetime of service to the nation as a commissioned officer. So even though there are separate programs, the physical program, the military program, the academic program, all of them have a very deliberate focus on character development. So we don't just do sports. We do sports through the lens of developing future professionals. We don't yeah. just... Um, so broadly equivalent to what we would recognize in the UK military as the commissioning course at Sandhurst. Do you think that there is anything that's unique about US Army or US military leadership that might be distinct from other people's? Well, that would be a, uh, a tough question for me to answer with certainty, but I would say based on my experience as an Army officer in various conventional and special operations organizations is that the, the through line for that is the willingness to push down leadership decisions to the lowest level and trust that the disciplined initiative will be on track with the commander's intent, the willingness to have young officers and young NCOs make decisions that might actually have strategic impacts. There's a general comfort with that and a willingness to accept a certain amount of risk that I'm not sure translates to all militaries, but it is seen as one of our strengths. And we have these conversations often at the Centre for Armed Leadership with other organisations that are not military about what is unique about military leadership and why in particular so many people are interested in it right. and come to us to talk about it. And it's generally that level of strategic decision making by young people in difficult circumstances where theirs and other people's lives are on the line. It just gives us that edge and perhaps organisations like Centre for Armed Leadership, mm -hmm. West Point, Sandhurst have a focus on it and think about it much more deeply as a result than most other organizations. Yeah, agreed. And a willingness to have or to allow folks to even consider themselves at the lowest level as part of this larger strategy is that, you know, we, we try to have people think at least two levels up. And Kevin, you? With the stakes so high, I think that's part of what does attract people to try to gauge what's going on with military leadership. The temptation can be, though, because the stakes are so high to back off of fostering of initiative on the part of the subordinates in order to uh, avoid some of the worst risks. And so I think it's a temptation across the military profession, more than just the U.S. Army, to try to minimize those risks by consolidating the decisions. And so it's something to be uh, resisted, I think, for the sake of successful operations and the understanding that you've got to identify and accept some risk in the process of, of getting the mission done. Yeah. Now, all three of us are in privileged positions at prestigious organizations that talk about and teach military leadership. I'll ask both of you, if I may, was there anything in particular that was formative in you 
getting to this point in your leadership development? Or was it in the early stages of your career, perhaps, Ben? Uh, my first real experience with what I thought was like, wow, that was kind of a profound, um, the, the story I like to tell is, incidentally, he's uh, fairly high up in our military now, but I remember my squadron commander, I was in the cab, getting up on a Humvee as I was a new gunner. We had just integrated with some infantry, trying out a new organizational framework. And he got up in front of me and I'm shooting and I'm seeing the maneuver element on a training range move into my, the area where I would generally go, I think I'm about to shift fires here. And I just see a hand jut out in front of me right next to the muzzle of my 50 cal alongside it and says, uh, you're good, keep going. And I'm okay. And I kind of look behind me, keep my eyes on the field and I see it's my squadron commander and he says, keep going. So here he is accepting risk. He doesn't know, I mean, he, he believes I'm certainly fairly confident I'm on the gun. And then I shift and lift according to his guidance. But then the real thing that struck me as, wow, I'm in a special unit with a special type of leader that I kind of want to work on emulating, is the next time I'm on the gun, he's in the lead maneuver element now, and I am shooting very close to my battalion command, squadron commander, I keep saying battalion. He's an infantry guy. And I have thought about that story as I've gone up through the ranks and been exposed to more leadership philosophy and I don't know that he ever even thought about what he was doing deliberately like that, but that is the kind of leadership that has stuck with me is the willingness to trust people, to push down a little bit of uh, risk acceptance and trust. Out of that, I was more trusting of myself and my own abilities. Yeah. And then also willing to assume some risk on his part to demonstrate that he trusted. That has stuck with me as the kind of leader I'd like to be. And uh, yeah, it wasn't in a book. It was from a five-minute interaction with an officer who cared and was present. Yeah. It can sometimes be strange the things that stick with you and can be and that informative. Was almost 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And Kevin, you? I reported my first unit, a field artillery battalion at, uh, in Colorado. And the battalion commander roped a lot of us in who had just reported into this room. And he says, uh, you know what I need the most from all of you new lieutenants? I need you to make a decision. I don't need you to wait for all your pet West Point theories to be all fully met and uh, circumstances blow you by before you've even come to your decision. I need you to make the best calls you can in a timely manner and accept the mistakes that come and don't worry, I'll underwrite them. And I did not realize at all at the time, in some ways maybe how innovative and bold that was on the part of him to try to inculcate this kind of initiative on our part. It also bothered me that it felt foreign. Uh, here I would spent four years at West Point at the US Military Academy and as beneficial as that experience was for me, I do remember thinking, like, I'm not used to feeling this level of go out there and, and make appropriate decisions in a timely manner and chase the mission down. So it, it did. It, it felt foreign to me. But that, that stuck with me in terms of, uh, ah, it seems like a lot of what we need for this business to go well is proper judgment on the part of the entire chain of command and not just on the part of that seasoned battalion commander who's in the hot seat. Yeah, Absolutely. So you, you both have deployed in operations around the world in various roles. And Ben, you find yourself now uh, having taught ethics, reasoning and moral deliberation at West Point. Is there anything in particular that through your career and your experiences led you to choose that path? Or did the army shape you towards your role there now because of your experiences? I'd say the latter informed the former there, um, some experiences in the Army, and then the Army's willingness to, I, I mean, I love the model, is junior officers going to West Point in droves, 
with the expectation that you may not be an expert, but you are in the profession and you're seeking to, to develop yourself through higher education and then share your practical, tactical, operational level experiences with, uh, you know, soon to be new generation of officers. So that the, the opportunity exists and is pushed throughout the force. That was there. But as far as like the personal motivations, I wish I could tell like a story where I was a hero where I, but really it was a story of uh, what I would say is a series of failures in judgment that culminated in me thinking I, one, want to see if I can actually affect some change here with um, my own research interests perhaps, but also I will share that story every semester with cadets and give them an example of like, here's what judgment looks like in the moment. Here's what it feels like. And by the way, not great judgment. Um, and uh, just to cut through the uh, the abstract discussion of the story here, the story I'm referring to is I was a civil affairs team leader in uh, Bosnia and I had the pressure from the embassy, legitimate pressure of making sure that we don't screw up any political military relations by the way we engage local politicians. So I was given the permission to engage with local politicians and mission location changed at the last minute. So we were kind of on our heels in terms of planning and our sleep was a bit affected. And, you know, I don't even think we ate, but then we show up at this uh, mayor's location that he had chosen. And long story short, I'm so focused on not burning rapport and to make sure I have a good report with the embassy so that I can expand this approach to engage with local leaders. In the process of being so hyper-focused on the outcome, I would say the process of judgment was clouded and I allowed my team medic to be groped by this gentleman right in front of me. And he knew what he was doing. It was like some kind of power move. And she was letting it happen as well because she believed as a leader that if I thought this was appropriate or needed to happen to, to accomplish this mission, then she trusted me. And I had unintentionally leveraged that trust to a point that was clearly within moments of this whole scene kind of ending, my intuition kicked in that I had crossed multiple lines. And even telling the story now, I still recall the way I felt in that moment, you know, sitting in a chair opposite you and, and replaying it, the nerves, the, the emotions. And I started to uh, experience what I now know is moral disengagement, the way I'm reframing what's happening. Oh, it's culture. It's it's how they do things. And or she's a big gal. She can take it. This is what she signed up for. So like almost blaming her in a way for the position she's in. And uh, I just remember thinking, wow, I'm, I have been trained for many things, how to engage, you know, open-ended questioning, how to set up a room properly to facilitate, you know, proper engagement. But I don't feel that I have been prepared for these types of situations. And um, I think there's a bit of a gap there that motivated me to try to address it through this approach that, you know, we'll get to later. But um, yeah, it was that one engagement lasted all of 20 minutes where I was crossing lines, but at the time I wasn't framing it that way. But within seconds, I knew that I had executed a series of poor judgments and it affected the personal relationship between myself and my teammates throughout the rest of the deployment. You can only apologize so much. Um, mm -hmm. And I've since reflected on those conditions and how we might at least make people more aware of the whole person they bring to the moment of judgment. It isn't just hyper-rationality. You know, uh, it's, it's emotion, it's physiology, it's your willingness to morally engage with the content. So uh, yeah, it all stems back from that kind of unfortunate story where I'm not the hero, but I am a key figure in the, in the story. A lot of the research and work that you're developing now, um, you refer to as moral terrain coaching. Can you just explain to us what that is and whether you think that those experiences you described previously are the main reason why you felt the need for this work or if you think having done some research and study it's a, a wider problem for the army or the military 
Um, definitely the first, again, was the initial motivation that got me interested in looking at what is out there right now in terms of like formal moral reasoning tools or training or program of instruction that the Army uh, references. And it's largely the same model across the, the Army that is used, which without naming it necessarily, is it's a hyper-rational model where it really models troop-leading procedures. Receive the mission, immediately initiate movement. So bias to action. Feel like you got to do something. Develop a course of action and then screen that course of action. And right away when I saw those two steps, develop and then screen, I'm like, well, that is not how I thought in the moment. I was not able to develop it and screen that course of action objectively because the mere developing a course of action already clouds the manner in which you screen it. It seems like those should be reversed. Have some criteria, have some guidelines, some moral exemplars out there, some principles that you first think about and what is allowed to sift through those would generate your course of action. That, that seems to be more appropriate. And then I realized, well, none of our doctrine that I'm at the time seeing in terms of moral reasoning addresses the human. It addresses what essentially a soft piece of software could do, assess the situation, develop course of action, a bunch of variables, but none of them were human variables in my mind. The emotions, the visceral states, the fact that you're hungry or very tired, we know as just lay people that I will make slightly different decisions based on those environmental or visceral state factors, the way my body feels, the way my body feels might tie to my emotions. None of that was covered. And I thought, well, this is an opportunity here to take ethics beyond the theoretical because I think people naturally, when they're experiencing these things in a moment that requires uh, a bit of deliberation over moral content, the moral terrain, as it were, after they experience and then you unpack it, they're like, oh, I definitely felt differently than I would in a classroom where I'm talking about Staff Sergeant Jones is about to do X. What would you do? It's so abstract. And I, the thing I keep saying is it's so much easier to be ethical in the abstract. It's a different approach if you go out to the field Observe soldiers in their natural environment, doing the training that they need to do to deploy. But I'm focusing on not the physical or the human terrain, the moral terrain. You're walking on it, so to speak, but you may not be aware of it because we just haven't really found a way or invested in the conversation that would elicit greater moral awareness or moral sensitivity, greater moral literacy, able to actually speak about what you're experiencing from a moral sense, ultimately to contribute to the reduction of moral disengagement. If you're aware of what's going on morally, you're, you're aware that you are called to make a judgment and you are aware of the psychological tricks that your own mind can play on you to reframe things so that you can have it both ways. You can be the good person and do the wrong thing. It's to develop moral competency. In the same way we develop weapons marksmanship, you cannot escape being on the moral terrain. So why not embrace it and inject those conversations into your pre-existing training? That's been the gap I've been you know, trying to fill and I've had a lot of help from Lieutenant Colonel Cutright doing that most recently at uh, West Point last summer with cadets. And do you get a sense as you start to expose your work to a wider audience, more senior military audience, perhaps that there is an appetite to rebalance the amount of tactical, harder training, that which we recognize as commanding vehicles, conducting attacks and defense, firing weapon systems. And actually we need to find more time or rebalance time to focus more on moral terrain and how we cross it. With uh, Dr. Jeff Peterson at West Point, uh, who heads kind of our overall character development programming throughout the different military physical academic programs, I'm stolen this line, borrowed rather, his line of, we have long said that it's character or competence and we've thought that maybe investing in like character development will come at the cost of time that you can dedicate toward developing competence, tactical skills. And he goes, no, the tactical skills require the character. They are mutually reinforcing. Greater competence and awareness will yield, ideally, better character, 
Better character gets you more trust to allow you to, to achieve things and employ your competence to a greater degree. So that is the initial approach I uh, request or concern is, hey, this looks great on paper. Can it actually be done in the field in a way that doesn't disrupt my training? And I say, why don't you just come out? We'll show you. Don't even don't even worry about where to fit me. I'll just observe your training. And when I think it's appropriate based on you know natural breaks in training, no training has ever been conducted so perfectly that there isn't a gap, mm-hmm. is... You just are aware of a situation that's like, oh, that's a good moment to talk about. When there's a gap, I'll pull that soldier aside one-on-one and you just have a conversation, you know, that is facilitated by this card. Um, Though not rigidly, uh, it's just a tool. And you can show them that in the span of 30 minutes, you can have a conversation that the soldier walks away going, or any other service member, or really any member of a profession, I think just is beyond the military, um, walks away. And, And granted, the numbers are low as far as data points, but we've had about 30 uh, of these on paper interactions. We've been doing a lot more of this kind of explaining it to the audience. Uh, we're having a trial this summer, but the experience has largely been very positive. Things like, where was this training when I joined the army in 2008? Mm-hmm. Things like, if this is ethics, this is what I want. And I personally am not undercutting ethics education in the classroom, but I think ethics has always been about action. Judging is great, but it's judgment and doing that go together. And the doing happens more often than not in the field. And the experience has been rewarding. And um, once you can show commanders that time is not necessarily a resource that's being uh, abused with this process, it's it's leveraging your time, I think, to its max capacity. You're getting character and competence at the same time. I think Ben's program uh, offers the experiential learning component that is the absolutely necessary complement to some of the classroom instruction or other efforts at precisely this. I think this is what so many senior leaders are latching on to is that uh, it's a feasible way to get after some of these very important components of operations with the ethical aspect, especially you know, being highlighted in various instances over the last 20 years of, of how there needs to be a way that we better get after that part of the training agenda. So on the scholarly side, I've seen a number of voices, you know, vaguely gesture, of, hey, we need something that maybe could better incorporate the development of moral understanding among our soldiers of regardless of rank. And then lo and behold, coming across moral terrain coaching just seemed to be a real concrete moment, a real fruitful effort at trying to fill that gap. Yeah. It hadn't occurred to me until we've just had this conversation, despite having had a look at your work before you came in, that as a company commander before we deployed to Afghanistan, I was gifted, each of us were gifted from the commanding officer five days of what what we would call white space in the calendar in a, in a very busy pre-deployment training schedule. There was one week which he could give us, which was the last week before we went on pre-deployment leave, before then deploying to Afghanistan, which he said, you can do as you wish in that week. And my, my choice was to take the company to Scotland in civilian clothing with no weapons. And we did five days of walking up mountains, running up mountains and before, after, and during, talking about values, standards, ethics, law of armed conflict, rules of engagement, in an entirely different environment to that which those things are usually talked about and, and in, in a different way, most of which was delegated down to the, the team commanders. And there were a lot of raised eyebrows at the time that that was my chosen way to fill that space. And almost to a person, subsequently everyone said that was the most valuable week of training. We did, once we got to the end of the tour and we realized how, how much we had used 
the things we had talked about that week. Uh, that's just recurred to me then as we've had this conversation about allocating time to it in a, in a very yeah. packed schedule already. So you're still accomplishing some of the training objectives of, hey, physical fitness and stuff, but it's sometimes that content needs to be delivered in a different environment to elicit the full human engagement with the content in the way that you just wouldn't probably have had the same success if you had done it in an air-conditioned classroom with all of your soldiers facing the front, looking at their watch, waiting for lunch. Absolutely. And Kevin, you, you've been doing some work quite closely related to the philosophy of empathy with regards to adversaries and, and how we make soldiers, in, in our case, better at understanding that, implementing that. How does that fit in with Ben's work? Yeah. Um, I was honestly at an army school at Fort Leavenworth and surprised to discover that the word empathy is in my own doctrine, and I didn't know it. And it was that that maybe kicked off the whole research effort that I eventually had the privilege to pursue of how is it that empathy, in fact, is a really good thing to have in our doctrine. I saw two problems that kind of need to get worked out with this topic would be one, what do we mean by empathy? And can we come to grips maybe with a, a sensible definition and rise above maybe the contrary definition? And then two, what do we mean by soldiering? And as we flesh that out with a little more clarity, maybe it becomes easier to see how empathy is not only compatible, but in fact, vital for uh, the duties that we ask soldiers to do. And so the compliment, I think, with uh, Ben's Moral Terrain Coaching is empathy can be quite the effective antidote for the dehumanization that can so easily happen in combat operations, the moral disengagement that Ben referred to earlier. It can help vastly improve the, the moral sensitivity or awareness of the moral aspects. One way to put this would be being empathetic is, a, is an effective lens through which to, to see that moral terrain. Yeah. And, and it's empathy focused on adversaries as opposed to just empathy with your colleagues. Have you come across people who are resistant to the idea of us being more empathetic to adversaries because it might be seen as a weakness in our approach to operations or, or anything like that? You can generate a hesitation maybe of, of taking the appropriate action when it's needed or urgent action. And there's absolutely a way in which I think you know, we must acknowledge empathy taken too far is a problem. But we should also acknowledge that uh, the far more common problem is, is empathy taken up way too little. And the, it is the most controversial element maybe to think about how it is we're to be empathetic with adversaries. Again, it makes more sense though, right? If by empathetic, we clarify that what we mean is a better understanding of their worldview, a better understanding of their experiences. Empathy is all about an understanding of another's experience. It has nothing to do with agreeing with others' opinions or agendas or interpretations of that experience even. So uh, in this regard is where maybe we need to just distinguish between understand and agree and distinguish between empathy and sympathy. There's quite the pragmatic benefit of empathy when it comes to properly anticipating what adversaries may do or may value or may prioritize. Empathy for me, uh, after two deployments to Iraq, quickly became a kind of one word after action review concept for me. Uh, so much of, of maybe what's gone wrong in Iraq and the counterinsurgency efforts, and then also so much of what went right, I think can be grounded in empathy and having a proper integration of that element into operational planning, let alone battlefield conduct. Yeah. So I think you alluded to it briefly there. Actually, you could sell it as a, a tactical or operational advantage. It's almost red teaming in even more depth. You're, you're looking at the situation from an adversary's perspective in such a way that that could give you an operational tactical advantage and predicting what they may do. Absolutely. I think uh, I looked for the word empathy a lot and 
in U.S. doctrine regarding intelligence too, because it it seems so inherent to maybe what we ask our intelligence officers and and personnel to provide, which is you know this full grasp of what's going on in the minds of of the adversaries. Never found it because again, I'm convinced the word does have some baggage with it that that maybe makes some people adverse to it. But definitely found all sorts of uh, points in the development and the training of our intelligence officers that definitely are synonymous with empathy, uh, even if I didn't see the word. Uh, we find it in our leadership doctrine. And I've come to really value that my leadership doctrine has empathy of not only with subordinates and uh, local populace, but with adversaries. And I, I find it uh, when you're talking about empathy so much, when I first started talking, and I, I've, I've since realized that some terms if they carry baggage and you can get rid of that baggage, just change the word you use if it gets the same point across. So like the more theoretical appropriate term is moral sensitivity. But sensitivity sounds like weakness, even though we would say like if you're in a signals branch and you're sensitive to a signal that an enemy is like, oh, that's good sensitivity. But when you say moral sensitivity, it can sound like weakness. So when I talk about emotions and then I've got that moral sensitivity word floating and the affective domain, the physiology, and if the person's tired or hungry, a person can perhaps rightly start to think, are you giving reasons for explaining or justifying maybe bad judgment? It's like, no, I'm simply talking about the whole person here. And that same officer sometimes will say, ah, I don't like all this discussion about emotions. I'm going to stick with the model we have. Hey, when you come into my office, I don't want your emotions. I want a decision, right? Understand that. It's efficient. But then the next week we'll say, by the way, we're having a, a LPD on uh, the need for empathy. And I'm like, well, which one do you want? Do you want one who is, it's, it's more of a kind of a sociopathic engagement with the world, which is stripping of, of anything human, inefficient. You know, humans are inefficient. We're clunky when we engage with each other, but we're human. Or do you want an LPD that's well run on empathy? You don't seem to have both. And I think Colonel Cutreg helps bridge that gap that I have since been interested in, in addressing it through moral terrain coaching as well by talking about the practical, tactical benefit of being empathic with uh, even your adversary. Yeah. Now, all, all of us are products of our experience, and for us three, most of those operational experiences will be in counterinsurgency operations. Do you think that, as for obvious reasons, focus shifts back towards major combat operations, that your work is, is that a product of counterinsurgency experience for both of our armies over the last 20 years, and therefore likely to gain more or less traction when major combat operations becomes more of a focus. Yeah, I'm not ready to give up on on empathy as we do make maybe the necessary shift. It absolutely has purchase at the most basic level when it comes again to anticipating adversaries and understanding what's important to them. So in that regard, it plays just as uh, important of a role. And then the other element, you know, in my own operational planning and experiences you know, we need to quit neglecting the very real phase of stability operations that are going to be spurred by whatever major combat operations occur. And so we're right back into maybe a moment where empathy maybe reigns as a, as a really important component maybe of interacting well with locals, with former adversaries, as well as maybe the, the holdouts. And then empathy also keeps us focused on the point being to defeat an enemy instead of necessarily destroying an enemy. If we can defeat an enemy by employing a certain threat in a certain manner or arranging the battlefield in a certain manner where all of a sudden you've got them uh, surrendering instead of, uh, instead of mowing them all down, empathy maybe helps us recognize, well, that can actually be a really good thing. 
an unempathetic soldier is going to be the one much quicker to think that, no, the way we achieve peace is simply eliminating all those adversaries altogether. Uh, at more cost, both to the enemy, but also at more cost to one's own military as well. And regarding the the concern possibly that moral terrain coaching is great for coin environment where you're dealing with a you know more directly with the human uh, dimension of your of your you know the way the adversary is leveraging the civil population and the real gritty one on one kind of relationship that you might not think you have in a large scale combat operation with maneuver elements on maneuver elements. It, it, it's about engagement with the adversary, sure, but it's also about like at the end of the day you're going to be moral terrain coaching yourself one way or the other. Some people do it twenty years after they get out. And they they have other ways of coping, many of which are not healthy. This is a way for people to start to unpack these stories as they're occurring in a way that is structured, in a way that is ideally just as common as the AARs. Like my ultimate vision is that this isn't something that has to get brought in from outside. It's just another thing we do as an AAR that focuses on the moral content of of the training that we're already doing, um, because reflection can be dangerous if it's not done in a, in a structured way. And if it's done all at once, it's like unloading all of your household goods on one day. No, if you've ever moved in the military, which we all have, you like to move and unpack a little bit at a time. It's much more neat. It's much more structured. This gives a way for even in large scale combat operations, there's significant moral decisions that are being made. In fact, they're probably more mired because now there's a distance between you and your adversary that wasn't there with coin perhaps. Now there's a lot more equipment between you which might make it more easy to morally disengage because I'm not killing people, I'm killing a tank, right? I mean, basic stuff we've known since uh, large-scale combat operations have come and gone. I think it's just as relevant. It just might mean that the way that you employ it in a field training environment has to change. The idea is not to force this, it's to implement it in a way that meets their needs. But I think there's a need no matter what type of combat we're in or competition. Or cooperation. A lot of moral issues can come up with the way we cooperate with our allies and our partners as well. There's no escaping in a profession the moral domain. And perhaps coming even further back away from the discussion about major combat operations, has your research or your conversations as you start to expose your work gone into civilian industries, businesses and the like, who think that there might be value for them in a civilian version of moral terrain coaching or a, a focus on empathy against competitors in a, in a business sense. So inherently, at first glance, it looks like a military document. But if you look closely, there's nothing on here that states that this is only for the military. I think if you're in a profession where the moral content is elevated because you're working on behalf of a client who trusts you implicitly and you have expertise in your own jurisdiction and are given autonomy, that this could translate to the, the classical professions and the, and the contemporary professions, whether it's law enforcement, uh, there's clearly a need for more engagement there. You know, one of the highest rates of suicide in professions is doctors. I mean, a lot of health people don't go to the hospital. Like that there's a lot of opportunity for disengagement. It's, the more repetitively we do something, the more we become desensitized, the more we disengage, the more we might transgress. And then we go home and unpack it, we have shame. This is designed, I, I would look at it as a, a prevention tool and also not just focusing on the negative, regardless of what profession it might track with, you know, if it gets uptake beyond the military is I don't just want to focus on the negative. I know it's a human tendency is negativity bias, but also those soldiers, those, those practitioners and whatever profession who demonstrate moral courage, but do it from an intuition instead of not necessarily a cognition of, wait a minute, I actually now trust myself a little bit more in the same way that that story I told about my squadron commander is I had an intuition of what leadership looked like 
And then I, as I unpack it and I start to rationally process it, I start now to have something I can physically intentionally do in the same way, unpacking these kind of intuitional demonstrations of moral courage that are out there, even in training, is you can now give voice to that intuition. So now they can share it. They can demonstrate moral literacy and say, hey, look, you're going to feel these things possibly. I'll tell me tell you a story when I felt this way. I just kind of did it. And now looking back, I realized that my judgment was oriented on the horizon of good action. Let me tell you how I got there, you know, and then you can share those stories of success so we mobilize the good news stories to our advantage as well. Um, but we walk the moral terrain and seek vantage points and not just talking about, you know, the moral terrain of the swamps and all the times we failed, you know. Most human beings who choose to be soldiers are going to reflect. And the few who don't, we should be really concerned about. Those who insist on remaining indifferent to the moral terrain that maybe is very much a part of, part of their operations. And so if we assume that the reflection is going to happen, I think we actually as a profession, as institutions, have an obligation to prepare these soldiers for that kind of reflection that's absolutely going to occur. The moral terrain coaching, I think, is one great attempt at investing in that preparation. On the empathy side, you know, simply a way of talking through as soldiers maybe how empathy, in fact, is its own appropriate virtue uh, that needs to be incorporated and not just stiff-armed. An additional danger of not investing in this preparation, I think, would be, you know, this rising attention that's been paid over the last 20 years to uh, moral injury. So apart from the additional war crimes that could occur or failed operations that can occur, uh, there's certainly the, uh, the risk of moral injury and the, the damage to those individual human beings um, who have uh, chosen to be soldiers. So moral terrain coaching, I think, has this added benefit of, of reducing the risk of moral injury. Um, it has a way of being that venue through which maybe something like empathy can be can be discussed and, and fleshed out as actually having its own own role to play. Yeah, I think I can see a, a wide application even outside the the army and the military. Where in the UK and I suspect there's examples in the US as well. The recent trend is for entire institutions to potentially be undermined, if not collapsed, because of people's lack of values lack of moral courage because of character failings rather than their actual business. It's not that which is tripping them up. It's their behavior of their people and, and how they go about their day-to-day -day business, maybe not even in work, that is unhinging entire institutions at the moment. And we certainly have a lot of interest at the Center for Army Leadership from non-military organizations coming to us to talk about how they go right back to the roots of forming values, mm. leadership skills and traits so that they can protect their institutions and their organizations from being undermined before they even get to actually doing their business, whatever that business may be. Yeah. Just to echo that, I don't think that uh, the military has a monopoly on, um, you know, character or leader development. It's just that maybe because the stakes are maybe not necessarily higher than, let's say, a surgeon who's performing some kind of very significant operation or something, but um, it's that we are a massive organization that this stuff can get kind of lost in and seen as minutia that's bolt-on stuff. You know, it's nice to do if you have time. I think sometimes there's a concern or there's a, a claim that we have a higher calling than other professions. I think all professions, if they are internalized correctly, are going to have opportunities to morally disengage and be maybe morally turned off because they get dehumanized in the practice of their profession, perhaps, is that this is a tool that could benefit everyone. And 
it just happened to maybe come from the military. If it, if it goes places, uh, I, I, I'm less interested in what it looks like at the end. And I'm more interested in if people are having a conversation, whether that conversation's according exactly to this car or not is frankly irrelevant to me. Absolutely. So both of your areas of research and emerging work are fascinating, but our listeners really enjoy also getting that very personal perspective on leadership in particular. And so if I may take you back towards your personal experiences and, and views on leadership, do you think that there is a particular leadership style or character that you've identified for yourself or that people have told you you have as a leader? And I'll let you choose who goes first. Uh, I'll give it a shot. Um, yeah, I don't know. In some ways, I, I think it's hard because you're asking a question about self-knowledge, right? And that can be the slipperiest. But uh, there's ways in which I think what's become really at the heart of, of my own leadership philosophy has been love and competence and, and allowing that caring attitude to be at the forefront of interactions with colleagues, regardless of rank. I sign off my emails to cadets with the word respectfully because I've witnessed once in a while how it seems like the respect just culturally is enforced as only going up, not coming down. And I think that's valued by the cadets and by others mm -hmm. that, that I've been the leader of. Uh, I, I do want to mention competence too, because in the last 20 years, I've seen very important attention being paid to emotional intelligence or empathy or transparency and trust and building all this kind of stuff. All these things really matter. I'd hate though for a cadet, you know, to speak to the audience that I've been most attentive to in the last five years, I'd hate for them to somehow slip away from the fact that what they also really need to bring is utter competence at their job. And I try very hard in my own leadership style to, to bring that, right, and to, to model it. Definitely falling short on several important occasions, but but yeah. None that I've seen. Yeah. Well, there you go. That, yeah. That's why I'm sitting here. <laughs> Again, I was thinking, I'm going to pause. You said you'd give us the option to who goes first. I knew that I would outweigh Colonel Cutright, and that would give me time to think. And I... Uh, like I said, I, I've studied philosophy for two years. I don't pretend to call myself a philosopher, but I think one thing that it has reinforced was a natural inclination, something that I respected greatly from leaders that I've, you know, look up to as mentors, whether they know it or not, are the ones, you know, having come from a philosophy background now, I feel just so much more comfortable saying, I don't know. I don't know. And I think that if I don't know, I'm willing to let you try something that maybe the system is a bit uncomfortable with or... Maybe there isn't a SOP that's in, go try it. And if you fail, as long as it's the idea that you would underwrite good faith failure because the process was good, maybe the outcome wasn't necessarily great. So be it. I still count that as a success if you're learning from it. So I've tried to, in front of cadets, you know, the, the primary audience for myself in, in the current moment and my children to tell them that I'm your dad. I don't know everything by virtue of just being in this position. I'm your instructor. I don't know the answer to your question. Why don't you go try to find that out and then report back to the class? And then it's kind of liberating. Like, wait, you trust, you respect me enough to, my, my placement is lower than you, but yet my opinion, that the opinion or the argument rather, or the or the idea wins the day ultimately. And it can come off like you're laissez-faire or, or, you know, flippant or something. But I think upon like any kind of scrutiny or further evaluation, if someone's looking outside in, we'll say, wait, it's intentional. This person is intentionally possibly even playing the fool on occasion in order to elicit the creativity and inspiration and motivation of those who are used to receiving information from on high to go out and try and possibly fail. 
And in the end, they actually use it and it more successful than not. And then others see that and they, and they build off that like, hey, this is what trust looks like. And I wouldn't say that I was intentionally employing principles of mission command and stuff, but in a way it, that works. Trusting people, letting people fail as long as it's good faith and being willing to say you don't know inspires others to go find answers that maybe the organization wouldn't. Yeah. Can I offer a postscript? Absolutely. I mean, in, in light of Ben's leadership philosophy, if you will, one observation I found interesting is there's some cadets who are actually uh, not comfortable at all with this uh, investment of trust and insistence that they go do it. They're all too ready to be programmed, to be in receiving mode and find that far more comfortable than this higher thing that, that you're trying to draw out of them. I've started lesson one of the last several semesters have been these two quotes, anonymous quotes from cadet feedback I got when I was teaching at West Point the first time a decade ago, where their complaint in this anonymous feedback at the end of the philosophy course that, that we'd wrapped up was, Major Cutright never told us the right answer. In this arena, and I think the cadet meant this moral arena of, of moral terrain, uh, we need to be told what to think, not how to think. Those were the exact words of, of this cadet. And it was then maybe that it was illuminated to me that, that in fact, you know, one perhaps understandable human tendency to be like, I don't want to be burdened with this kind of judgment maybe that, that moral terrain coaching gets after. But I love having the cadets now in class, you know, look at those quotes and uh, discuss themselves maybe the shortcomings that, that's, that those quotes yeah. represent. And that then sets them off on the right path for the whole rest of the course. That's right. That's right. They can no longer maybe uh, offer that same complaint. <laughs> yeah. There's more than one way to climb the mountain and uh, prescribing a route only works in very specific conditions. Right. Uh, right. That's kind of what I said. It's like your job is to get up there and you're going to stumble along the way on your own route that I might be merely a guide for. And sometimes you'll be guiding me mm -hmm. if you have a particularly sound approach to getting up there, whatever that mountain is. Do you both have a particular individual, uh, a leadership hero, whether that's still serving uh, or from history that you look to or that particularly inspired you in, in one particular direction? Should I go first now so you have yeah, time to think? It. So he's actually one of your own. Unless you're stealing his one, which no. case that would be. I'll, I'll call foul if he Yeah, does. yeah. No, uh, leadership hero, I, I don't pretend to. Um, I constantly think about the way this person engaged um, with his subordinates and his environment in the face of just abject failure by outside standards. So your own, I know it's maybe hacking at this point, but Shackleton. I, I love the idea of the, the famous quote that probably didn't occur, you know, need men for dangerous mission, success unlikely. The, the quote that probably didn't run. Yeah, People focus yeah. on that. The idea that here he is surrounded by ice, his boat is in the, in, in the imminent breakup. He's got multiple personalities on his team, some that are on board, committed. They have the competence, character, and commitment. Some are more competent character, but not committed. And then you have some folks in between. But here he is in the middle of frozen hell, and he's having them do Hamlet inside the ship. <laughs> the knowledge of fellow man and the ability to connect with those individuals as a leader and realizing that his mission had changed and he has to adapt to his new mission. The new mission is bring everyone home. And the fascinating ways and the tricks he employed and, you know, just keeping them busy. I think he had him shoveling snow at one point. For what purpose? A greater purpose than obviously shoveling snow. Keep them busy. Keep them thinking that they're valued and, and engaged. Um, I think there's so many little tricks and positive character attributes that that story demonstrates. And I love most though is that at the end, it's the one time that I can really sell to, uh, you know, cadets or myself even is that, hey, 
we don't necessarily need to judge mission success by an outcome. Even though our own army mission statement is always ends with in order to, it's very consequentialist. But he was recognized by your king, right? You know, he didn't bring the uh, the success of planting the flag back. He brought the people back. And the story of um, was a greater success than anyone would have imagined. And he never accomplished the stated mission. Mm. Uh, the idea that the process matters oftentimes, I think, more than the outcome. Mm. So that's mine. I don't pretend I'm like him. And I certainly don't want to go on an expedition. Don't <laughs> get me wrong. Sometimes I, I walk West Point's grounds and uh, with a lot of admiring sta uh, statues that are worth admiring. So there's several exemplars maybe that I'm surrounded by. Uh, but once in a while, I have really wished that my institution might be willing to put up a statue of a non-grad. And that non-grad that comes to mind for me would be uh, uh, George C. Marshall. I cherish that here this eminent military leader during World War II goes on to earn uh, the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, given the, the Marshall Plan and all that. And I just value that so much of that for me represents being very much aware of what wars are meant to be contributing to. Uh, and that's some kind of better peace and some kind of uh, reconciliation afterwards, right? Becomes really important. So Mar Marshall's one uh, for sure. And then the other one, you know, I have to hesitate just because, you know, he's not an army guy, he's a Marine, a U.S. Marine. But, we'll cut uh, this later, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but Mattis to me has just uh, been a recent discovery of just how good of a leader. I think he's a great model. Uh, his book, Call Sign Chaos, has just uh, been really gripping to me. Certainly, you find these themes in that text of uh, uh, aggressively fostering disciplined initiative in order to get after the mission, uh, both for principled and pragmatic reasons. Uh, the other thing about Mattis is that uh, if you listen to the account of, of the, you know, the one-page guidance he's giving to his his units may be right on the eve of rolling into Iraq or going into Afghanistan. He offers a really well-blended balance between character and competence, between uh, paying attention to the moral as well as all the other aspects maybe we're about to step into. So I just like that he uh, does a good job of incorporating the moral as its own really vital element of being the kind of warrior that he, he both embodies and paints a picture of. It's almost like we planned this so that I can name drop the fact that when General Mattis wrote to me a couple of years ago, we exchanged a couple of letters because we have a regimental connection in that when he was commanding in Task Force Ripper, the Staffordshire Regiment, now part of the Mercian Regiment, my regiment, were alongside them training and planning to go across the start line together. And on the 30-year anniversary of the Gulf War, we mm. exchanged a couple of letters just to remember that point because he mentions my battalion in call sign chaos, which is obviously what drew you to it as well, I would imagine. Right, right, right. But uh, that framed letter is a, a fantastic read, even now, when, <laughs> I, when I go back to look at it on the wall. It's, it's, a, it's a masterpiece in writing a letter as call sign chaos is a, a masterpiece of writing about his leadership journey as well. That's right. That's right. And separately, perhaps in a more contemporary fashion, what's your go-to podcast, book, film or leadership source for inspiring yourself or that you point cadets to at the moment? The book Practical Wisdom by Barry Schwartz and Ken Sharp. I've given that book out to more recent graduates of West Point than I could probably put on two hands. In so many ways, I think it just captures really so much of what maybe motivates moral terrain coaching and, and empathy. 
But that book, I think, is just a tremendous resource. Uh, and there's nothing specific to the military about it. It covers some, it illustrates maybe many of its points in the law profession, the education profession, and the military profession, the medical profession, and uh, I think is a tremendous resource. If you'll allow me to, I'll just very quickly mention that uh, uh, there's this uh, Australian podcast called The Voices of War, uh, hosted by uh, Vedran Maslik, uh, born in Serbia, I believe, and and lived his earlier through a little bit of that before making it out to Australia. He's now an Australian army officer himself, but great content on that podcast called The Voices of War. Um, so I should have called foul because I was thinking, uh, having recently not just finished Practical Wisdom, um, and I don't know that's a book you do finish. I think that's one you constantly revisit. Um, I just actually had breakfast a couple days yesterday, maybe? Time's flying. Uh, two days ago now, I suppose, with uh, General Retired Perkins. Um, we were presenting a conference plan where, oddly enough, this isn't, we, we're actually not making money off uh, plugging for this book. Um, that I know of anyway, <laughs> but Dr. Barry Schwartz, who's the primary uh, author and then Dr. Uh, Ken Sharp co-author are participating in the conference and we're actually giving everyone the book as a, as a study guide, right? And he talked yesterday morning about there are many skills that an officer has to have or a service member, any professional, I would say, where once you meet a threshold, it's probably diminishing returns on still advancing that success in that thing. Obvious example for me is physical fitness. Once you can achieve a certain threshold that your job, your profession requires, it's okay to continue past it, but there is a diminishing return on that investment of your time. Um, even intellect. Once you're a certain level of smart, great. But after that, maybe you divest a little bit or invest rather into some other things. And the one thing he said that this doesn't hold up is judgment. And that's because... And uh, I'm just paraphrasing here. In the military, in uh, any profession, as soon as you demonstrate competence, character, and commitment, you're elevated after a certain amount of time to a position which is entirely new. So your judgment at one level is not sufficient anymore because your responsibilities are greater, the situations are more complex, and they expect the same level of ability that you were promoted for. And that judgment is, there's no threshold to judgment was his point, is that General Retired Perkins, four-star, is still practicing developing of judgment which is why I go back to Barry Schwartz. I would recommend that people do read the book is they read it during phases of their life, chapters of their career, mm -hmm. because they will have different messages that um, resonate. And uh, yeah, so now um, I think we should probably get our, our honorarium back from Dr. <laughs> Schwartz. It resonates with us when our, our message is often that the people are looking for a leadership journey with an end point and we very much point out to them that there isn't one. There, there is always going to be room for improvement, growth and yeah. new ideas, new approaches as contexts and individuals change through their career and as situations change. Which is why we don't try to provide answers as much as process thinking. Mm. And it can mm. be quite intimidating. Mm. Like, well, if there's no end state, then it's quite a difficult journey to set off on when you don't know where the end is. Actually, right. we just encourage people and the one that all of the work that you can do to develop yourself is useful. It's all moving you in the right direction. Everyone can be better all of the time. I lead mm. with a, uh, mm. a quote sure most cadets haven't read, but understand we're very busy, but it's, you know, if I can say I have a teaching philosophy, that would be it is I leave with a quote by T.S. Eliot, you know, and I'm going to paraphrase it now, uh, unfortunately, because I don't have it exactly memorized. But the idea that there is no endpoint is that it's a series of re-engagements with previous versions of yourself and new understanding, the idea that you'll arrive at the place and again, and to know it for the first time. I'm constantly going back to stories where I have you know, I thought I did it right. And I look, but well, you know, I, wow, I could have improved that. Um, and I'm just revisiting. It's a series of upward, hopefully trajectory circles towards some unknown end state to know the self for the first time.
Hmm. That's a nice segue to our final question, which we like to ask people, a reflective one. Looking back, what's the one bit of advice you would give to a young Kevin and a young Ben if they were starting off on their leadership development journeys now? (laughs) I think I would emphasize uh, be the best version of yourself in the roles that, that you've been granted. Don't feel like you must be the uh, incarnation of anyone else, even if you need to be quite devoted to learning a heck of a lot from various others. Yeah. For me, uh, it's one question I feel I don't need a lot of preparation to answer. I sometimes look at the first no that I receive on something that I feel is the right thing to do as merely an obstacle that is shaping a better solution. That is someone, when they saying no, it actually is, they're doing me a favor by allowing me to reframe, to restructure, to, to plan further. And I don't look at no's as obstacles. I look at them as opportunities to get to a yes. Uh, and that's not like about manipulation or anything. It's that if you look at the first time someone tells you no as, as a slam door, then you just be prepared to walk a very straight path. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you tell yourself to get to that state of mind a lot sooner in your career than you did? I would. I would say at first... No can seem like, oh, that opportunity's passed or that that was a bad idea. And it might be 80% bad, but if you take a no to heart too much, you miss. For every National Geographic cover photo, there's 10,000 that that photographer probably took. Mm-hmm. There's something in there that might be worth continuing to pursue. And I think, and it ties in a bit with what we talked about earlier with the discipline initiative. Some of that discipline initiative is going to be ugly, but if it's failing forward in good faith, then your idea even if it's, you know, from a young specialist. Yeah, I was told I couldn't go to West Point because my grades in high school were, I was the top 75% of my class at West Point. <laughs> I didn't take that no. I said, okay, I'm going to study for the SATs while I was in Iraq. So I flew down to Baghdad after 10 days of studying and did really well. Within reason, sometimes no needs to be no. <laughs> um, but that's life. That's judging when is a no and if. <laughs> it's not fair to ask you the same question, is it? Uh, well, I've been asked that question before and I, you know, I do have to subject myself to a such an interrogation to be able to have some credibility to sit here and my answer was to back myself more because Mm. probably what I'm thinking is actually the right answer and Mm. far too often in my early career I reflected on things which developed and they developed to the way that I thought they would and I could have influenced them just by saying what I was thinking beforehand rather than just hedging my bets and waiting so that's what so I would tell myself to do earlier in my career wow yeah that's good Ben, Kevin, it's been an absolute joy to speak to you. Thank you so much, firstly, for the long trip to come across uh, and to speak to us, but also for the work that you're doing. Your, your research and your work is fascinating. And I think it's got huge value, both for US Army, wider US military, and actually then across to allies such as us. And thank you very much for all the work you do to undertake it. I think we'll all benefit from it. The time here is, uh, it's great to uh, share this with our allies and uh, looking forward to working with uh, current retired Vincent moments from now to see about sharing this uh, more directly in the field with uh, Army S cadets. So thank you. I look forward to it. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Been a privilege. The view from West Point, delivered by Ben and Kevin, was fascinating. Talking about moral terrain and empathy and the tactical application is fundamentally important when the stakes are high. It's clear how important it is for leaders to make time and put the effort in to engage with, train and practice the practical execution of morals, ethics and empathy if we are to prevail against enemies but also to protect our own forces. 
At its most basic level, there can be positive tactical advantages gained from being increasingly empathetic towards adversaries by understanding and anticipating them better and being able to defeat them in more nuanced ways. What is also clear from discussing how and why navigation of mole terrain can be so impactful is that the context in which military personnel are making decisions, often in complex circumstances under physical and psychological pressure, is fundamental in how they come to make them. We also heard some recurring themes on the character traits required for great leadership relationships, particularly the enduring positive impact of demonstrating trust and the ability of leaders to say, I don't know, and allowing failure for the purposes of learning. Common with the UK Centre for Army Leadership's mantra, the United States Military Academy at West Point concur that there is always room for people to improve their leadership skills throughout their career. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please share it with colleagues and friends and add your thoughts to the debate on social media. For more information on British Army leadership or to get in touch with the team, search for the Centre for Army Leadership website or find us on all your main social media platforms.